So no, the school system is not designed for them if we go strictly based on what the system requires. So it takes a lot of humanity in order to make it work for them. And that's something that we have to remind ourselves of. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. This is more than a moment. It's a movement. Hey, it's Danielle. Welcome to Black Educators Matter. Our goal is to share the stories of 500 Black educators. We will celebrate the impacts and achievements, learn from the lessons and challenges, and highlight the important roles that educators play in all of our lives. I'm excited to welcome today's guest to our show. As a do now, please tell us your name, your role in education, and answer the question, why do Black educators matter? My name is Janelle Hughes. I'm a high school English teacher. Based off of observation alone, I tend to notice how the students react when they're learning from a person of color versus not of color, right? So I can just see the shift in their faces and in their reactions when they're being taught by someone like me, they, or by someone they respect, right? The message tends to come across more genuine for them when they hear it from us. And that's just something I picked up on right away because me and another teacher can say the exact same thing and I would get a different reaction from them. So I think it's important as black educators to know that these students are looking at us like, wow, they look like me and they're saying these things, this must be legit. So I think that that's one of the main reasons why black educators are important. We tend to, for whatever reason, kind of hit home for them a little more. And whether that's fair or not, I mean, that's just the reality. And as a black female educator, we kind of take on a role of a maternal role unintentionally, right? And then we start to kind of co-parent with those parents and we talk about them like they're our kids. And that's something that just happens just because we are black. And I, I love that. I love that that happens. We have those expectations for them when they come in each day and they don't want to let us down. They don't want to disappoint us. All right, I'm about to call mom. You didn't do X, Y, Z. Um, uh, please don't call mom, Miss Hughes, please. So it's just, we, we take on this co-parenting relationship and it's really great. They get it at home, they get it at school and they just know they're cared about. So I think that's why black educators are important. Come on, Miss Hughes. <laughs> are you from, no, where are you from? I'm from Chicago. Well, I grew up in Country Club Hills on the outskirts. After high school, you know, I, I moved. I was in Champaign because that's where I went to college. Then my family. I L L. I and I. Okay. <laughs> I T Y Y. Okay. Then I, I, I moved to California after that, so I was in uh, Southern California for about six years, and uh, now I'm back in Chicago, home sweet home. Okay, home sweet home. So, what was it like for you in your K twelve educational experiences growing up in Country Club Hills? Was it diverse? It definitely was, because I started off kindergarten, I was on the west side of Chicago, and I went to the school, uh, Heffern, it's off Madison, I don't even know, it's on the west side, but my first grade year, I went to an all-white school, it was a school for, uh, like, gifted children, and I had to take this bus, like, a really long way out of the city, and I was there, and I just hated it, because the kids made fun of me, and all of that, and then I went back to the schools in Chicago, then when I moved to Country Club Hills in third grade, I wouldn't say it was very diverse. It was a lot of us. Uh, all our teachers were white, though, at that time. Country Club Hills was a different place, you know, in the mid-90s. So 
all of my teachers were white, but most of the students were, were black. And then in high school, I got more black educators, but it was still kind of a 50-50. No, actually more. I still have more white educators, but the students, the student body was not very diverse at all. It was still mostly African-American students. So, no, I wouldn't say that my K-12 experience was very diverse uh, student body-wise. And so were you at Illinois when you decided to pursue education as a career, or how did you decide to end up in the classroom? Okay, great question. So going to PWI. Ooh-wee, PWI, Illinois. That's a special PWI. I mean, unless you were in an African-American literature class, you were going to stick out like a sore thumb in every class. And I think that that... I felt many different ways about that, but I was there for one reason in my mind. That was to play basketball. I had a full-ride scholarship. I played ball there for four years, and I couldn't be happier about the choice I made for the school I went to for that reason. Also, the education. I mean, I got a, a great education, but I didn't I didn't gravitate to teaching until much uh, later. It wasn't in college, because in college, I'm like, I'm going to play pro ball, and that's it. Like, I just need my degree. And so, and I did that. So then after that, that's when I decided it was time to switch. So then I got into it because after I played overseas for some time for about four years or so. Where did you play? I played in Switzerland. I played in Romania. I played in uh, Israel. And I was in a Euro Cup. So we, we traveled around all of Europe. I played in many different countries. It was a life changing experience doing that. Like I, I made so many lifelong friends doing it. It was just amazing. It was good for me personally as a just being able to communicate with people from so many different backgrounds. Like it, I can't even express what that has done for me uh, in my life. But um, after that, I got into coaching and they don't go hand in hand. Being a player doesn't mean that you're going to love coaching or even be a good coach. I mean, I, I say it all the time. I think I was an okay coach, right? Um, I ended up getting the head coaching job at Robert Morris University. I coached the women's team there, and we were we were okay. I enjoyed the, the girls, the relationships that we made and had, and it was a great experience for me, but I knew that that's not where my future lied. So I was an assistant for three years, head coach for two years, and then after that, because I got to switch gears. I love instructing. I love coaching. I love teaching. That was just something that was innate for me. And so I just looked into teaching jobs. I had no real experience. I mean, I worked at, while I was coaching at Robert Morris, I was a, um, a building substitute at a school. So I was in the school for five years while I was coaching doing that. So I did get some experience. And I looked into teaching. I wanted to do high school. I did not want to teach the little ones. God bless them. <laughs> but I had no desire. So I got hired with this amazing network, noble network of charter schools in Chicago. Woo, woo. We just... It's a great place to work. Uh, shout out to the CEO, Constance Jones. Uh, she's amazing. And so I got hired there the first year. I was kind of co-teaching with this guy, history, that I had no interest in, but I was still having to be in the classroom. Next year, I got my own class teaching English to freshmen. And uh, following year, same thing, English to freshmen. So I got the lead teacher role, so I'm like the ninth grade lead teacher where I guess you're like over the ninth grade instructors in some way. This is going to be my second year doing having that role, which is great. So it's just something that's kind of started coming naturally for me. I just really feel like I'm, I found my niche, and um, I, I'm excited to be here. Like I'm learning so much in this role. 
Congratulations to you. And I'm familiar with Noble, so I see okay. you repping your network. I yeah, see you. Absolutely. Thinking about how you felt going from your school in kindergarten, then you said you had you were bused to that gifted school where the students made you feel the way that they made you feel. Then you came back to Chicago. Then you went to the suburbs. Then you went to a PWI. And now you are teaching at a charter school. Yep. How have all of those experiences shaped how you enter the classroom and create that space for students? Because I've had such various experiences, it's forced me to create an identity for myself. And if I hadn't done that, then I just wouldn't be where I am. So having those different background experiences, I learned who I, who I am and I can stand in front of a room of, of anyone from any background and know exactly who I am. So going into Inglewood, Chicago, to me, is no different than going to a, standing in front of a school in, in Italy and looking at kids who don't know my language. So I think that it has shaped me in such a way that I have this foundation and this knowledge of self that I'm able to try to convey that to these students as well. And when I watch them, follow these fads and try to be a certain way, I really try to pull that originality out of them. Like, hey, you don't, you don't have to do this. You're going to see the world. This isn't, you're not confined to this space. And the sooner that you acknowledge who you are and the power that you have, the better, the easier your life is going to be. Uh, you won't be concerned about all the outside influences. And so my experiences, I thank God for them every day because I look at people who have the, a sheltered life and haven't moved out of their five-mile radius, and no offense to those who, who haven't, but stepping out of that area just does, does so much for you as a human being and how you can show up in different spaces. Speaking of showing up and being able to show up authentically, do you ever find yourself having a shared sense of identity or connectedness between you and any of your students? And if so, how did you recognize it? So my history... And my experiences are not necessarily aligned with those of the students that I teach. But I think that the contrast of our experiences collides in a very beneficial way. So though I may not share those same experiences with them, I still know that I can contribute to them in a meaningful way, just seeing the, the opposite of that. And I do feel a connectedness with them, though, because I see them and a lot of them walk around with this kind of unmerited or unwarranted sense of entitlement. <laughs> and I get that, okay? I question authority all the time too, right? So it's like, hey, I don't got to, you know, I had that same type of mentality. And so I try to help them channel that in a good way. You do want to question everything, but at the same time, you want to do it in a way where people respect you. And as long as you're respecting people as you question them, you'll get that in return and it will make their lives go a little smoother. Instead of showing up like, no, I don't got to do this, there's different ways to approach that and still get the same answer that they're looking for. Because at the end of the day, they really want to be understood. They want to know why this is happening and, and what, what is the point of it all. And there are just different ways to communicate that. And I think that because my experiences are different from theirs, I can show them, hey, this is a, this is a better way. Because if, if my experiences were mirrored to theirs, I don't know that I would have that point of view for them. So even though they contrast, they, they still collide in a, in a meaningful way. They complement. 
They compliment, yes. That's, that's <laughs> the word. They compliment each other. Uh, yeah. What has been the most impactful moment you've had as an educator? But wait a minute, before we answer that, how long have you been a teacher? This will be my third full year. The 2021 year will be my full third year. Because you so started I, off co-teaching history mm-hmm. and then yeah. English and now English. Lead. Yeah, I had two full years of teaching by myself, uh, freshman English. So this would be my third year by myself. So yeah, that half year, I don't really, you know, it was great, but it wasn't my room. So this would be my third full year. Okay. So what has been the most impactful moment you've had as an educator thus far? And I wouldn't say it's a moment so much as it is a progression of excellence. There's this student who um, has a, a, a speech impairment, if you will, but he's like brilliant and his impairment causes him to not want to speak out or do anything like that. He won't even stand up to say his name. He wouldn't do that at the end of the year and turned in really poor, low quality work. And over time, as I noticed, like on like tests, he would just get A's. I'm like, man, you know this stuff, right? Nobody really gave him the attention that I, I felt he deserved and needed. And I noticed just through my experiences that most times when you're more private with your conversations and your expectations, you get better results. So I kind of let those things pass in class, but I definitely didn't let it, I didn't just sweep it under the rug. So I spoke with him continuously about the potential that he has and the knowledge that he has. You know the stuff, you know the content, who cares about your speech impairment. We know the message that you're going to say. We know that you know what you're saying. And the kids at our school, regardless of their backgrounds, they're really respectful kids. Like they, they don't make fun of people for their, their backgrounds or their lifestyle choices or anything like that. They're actually a very accepting student body. And so once he started to realize that, and he knew that I really believed in him and knew that he could do these things by the end of the year, he was standing up in front of the class, giving a speech, like on an essay, speech impairment and all. He's stuttering and we're just listening and we're like, yeah, he did it. He was so happy. And after class, he stayed after he was late for the next period. Like, man, it's huge. I just I, thank you for like making me do that. He said making them do it, but I'm like, hey, I just I just gave you the the words, like the encouragement. You did it. So I think that was huge because from day one to that day, I would have never seen it. But I'm like, I'm not giving up on this kid. So I think that was my moment where it's like, man, okay, change. Progress is a process. So it wasn't necessarily a moment, but it was a, this progression of seeing him go from this to that. And he was so proud of himself. And I just never forget. He couldn't even make eye contact with me. He was he was just so happy. I was like, great job. Come on, progression of <laughs> excellence. Yeah. This is just one of many stories and we want to keep the conversation going. Follow us on Instagram at blackeducators.matter. Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org. Help build the movement by joining our Patreon. Now, let's get back to our Project 500 podcast. So now I'm going to ask a question that, speaking of progression, what would you say is the state of education in Black America and how did we get here? Man. First of all, that's a great question. How did we get here? How did we get here? And that's, I don't know how we got here, but we're here. And I think the progression, from what I can see, is we're still 
the the educational system for black students is still unequitable. We're still not getting grade level content in front of our kids. Their uh, white peers are still being exposed to things that are going to get them more ready for the world. And we're fighting against that. I've been in countless uh, professional development classes and dialogues about this and how we're trying to come at this. We need equitable education for our kids. We need to get those materials in front of them. And once we do, man, they're going to be a dangerous bunch. How do we get here? That's something that I'm still trying to figure out myself because it's like we they deserve it. They're not under deserving. They don't those kids in other areas don't deserve it more than our kids. Our kids appreciate that. And the the problem with it all though is that you know people look at it and say in your type of schools, your schools with black students, they get these teachers that are, are not trained and there's a high turnover rate and they don't really care. They're just trying to get their foot in the door. And then you got the people who are saying you get the TFA people who come in and only want to stay for the two years and leave. And nobody's really dedicated to these kids. And so there's some merit to that. And we have to look at it from the edu- from the educator point of view and look at ourselves and say, am I the best person who should be in front of these kids? And I look at myself in the mirror all the time. And I'm extremely hard on myself. Am I the person who should be delivering this message? And in my moments of doubt, I, I get back to it. I'm like, I, I know that I am because I care. And I, I care so much. I'm getting my master's in teaching right now. And it's not even for me. It's for the kids. It's because I want to be a better instructor in front of them. Would I want my kids in front of me? My answer to that now is yes. Like I would. I wouldn't want anybody else in front of them. I feel like I'm a a warm demander, if you will, where it's like I'm not going to be all dictator to them. But um, I'm definitely going to demand things from them. So where we are right now, we have to look at ourselves as educators. We have to raise the bar for ourselves. And really, at some point, I do believe the tide is going to turn. We're going to get those materials. We're going to make sure these kids are getting that equitable education as the kids in the other neighborhoods so that the playing field is more level for them. And that's just the fight that I want to continue to be in as long as I'm an educator and beyond because they do deserve it. So this is something, these are things we're still asking ourselves. We're still trying to figure out how we got here, but we're, trust me, it's a whole bunch of us working at this. I know it. I know it to be true is there are so many people involved in the work and it is hard work and it is hard work and it is lots of people in the work. Yes. Thinking about all of your experiences again, from students to from your own elementary school experience, college, now back when you were coaching and subbing and now back as a full time teacher. Are schools designed for children of color, particularly black kids? Man. Uh, no. I mean, that, that's my resounding answer. At this current state and time, my answer is no. It's not made in a way that's going to see them on the track to success, the track that they want to see themselves on. They have to work twice as hard. And it's really not that fair because they're already working twice as hard in every other area of their lives. And so to come to school and see that they're not getting the things that they need, how police are just up and down the hallways and ready to take them away and, and we're not counseling these kids the way that we need to. It's so many different mental barriers 
that these kids have with them that they're just carrying from home and from any other aspect of their lives that we don't see. And all we see them is in the classroom with their head down and well, you got to get up, you got to go. Well, let's, let's figure this out because that's not a system designed for them to succeed. Like we got to get to the root of it. And that's something that this past school year, I've made a priority for myself. My first year, I'm like, nope, these are the rules. This is the student code of conduct. You can't do that. And it just was not serving them. And I noticed that. And I'm like, man, I'm putting in, we have a thing at our school with demerits. I'm putting in so many demerits a day. And then I go back and look at that log and it's like, no, there, there's something bigger than this. This past year, I barely, barely put in demerits, less demerits, more conversations. And I just got so many, so much better results from that. So no, the school system is not, is not designed for them if we go strictly based on what the system requires. So it takes a lot of humanity in order to make it work for them. And that's something that we have to remind ourselves of. Um, it's not gonna be your traditional code of conduct, student code of conduct that you follow in order to see them succeed. It's gonna take that humanity. It's gonna take compassion. It's gonna take listening. And that's one of the biggest things that I've learned. It's not so much in their delivery. It's not so much in the words they're using or their tone. It's really in what's under that. What are they trying to convey? And we tell them, you gotta know when to turn it on and off. They don't know how because they don't know the alternative to that. Whereas some of us, we have an alternative. We know how to turn it on and off, but what are they gonna turn on? What are they gonna turn off? It's who they are. And so that's one thing that I've learned this past year. I'm not taking it personal. I'm not taking the way you're talking to me personal. I'm not taking your your language even. And that's something that, I mean, I'm an English teacher, so it's like nails on a chalkboard. But guess what? I'm here to teach you because nobody has so far. You haven't received it. And so teaching ninth grade, they ask me, are you, do you want to do a different grade? No, give me the ninth graders. Give me the ones fresh into high school. Let me set the standard. Let's set this culture. Let's reset the culture. So this will be my third freshman class. So by the time they are seniors, I've taught all those kids. So yeah, let's see what this culture is looking like. And, and that's, that's really all it is. We have to make sure we're actually listening to, to hear them and not just listening to the delivery of it all. And I think school, it will in turn at some point, at some point be a place that's designed for them. But it's not going to be in the same way that you see it in the other neighborhoods. So two things. One, how did you, with this early in your teaching career, learn how to step outside of your ego in order to connect with your students with that empathy and humanity, especially when you have a system like demerits in place? Because some people would argue that you are doing a disservice by not recording those demerits. It's holding them accountable and it's a slippery slope and you sweat the small things and all that kind of stuff. But how did you, Because and the reason I say step out of your ego is because you said like, I don't take it personal. I'm not taking this personal. So like, how did you so early in your career see that you needed to make that shift in order to have these conversations instead of, following this demerit system in order to get this outcome you wanted? That's a great question. The way I'm able to step outside of that is because of my knowledge of my own identity. And that's something that I try to teach the other, my teachers on my team, that you can't take it personally. You know who you are. Them telling you, talking to you in a certain way or doing whatever should have no bearing on you. So I know sometimes you have bad days and teachers run out of the classroom crying, I quit. Don't do it. Don't do it. You know who you are. 
you were made for this. So th this is our job. It's not an easy job, but you're made for this. And so, yes, people could argue and say, you're not following the SEC. You've got to put these merits in. But I've seen what that does. And so by doing the opposite, and not all the time, I'm not just like throwing this out of the window. Right. <laughs> on most occasions, most occasions, a conversation will get you the results you want. I have to see these kids every day. So it's not like I just give a demerit and I don't see you again. I give you a demerit and I see you again the next day. I give you demerits and detentions. I see you the next day. What sort of relationship are we building? Is that a relationship of trust or of consequence? And when you want to build that trust, because once they trust you, then you can teach them. You can't teach students who don't trust you. And that's something that I've learned early on. When I look at some of my educator friends and they're phenomenal, but they're not getting the results they want from the students. And it's like, hey, they don't trust you because as soon as they talk to their friend in the back, you're giving them a demerit. And it's like they're human at the same time. We're adults and we are the worst students. Oh, my we God. Oh, my God. Have you tried to lead a P? Have you ever tried to lead a PD full of teachers? Have you? I've not tried to lead a PD, but meetings. Oh, my God. The worst. Like so we got somebody over here entitled. They're in their phone. We got somebody who has to talk to their neighbor. We got somebody who just up and leaves for a little while. So it's just, <laughs> and they can't do that. And we're grown and we have training and we are competent and we know how to do these things. But these kids, I got 14 year olds, 15 year olds, 16 year olds in my classroom and we expect them to just be little soldiers. It's not going to happen. That's not the reality. And I think I get such a great response from my students because they know if you continue to do this, like if you're just going to be insubordinate and just egregious, then we're going to have an issue. But initially you are human. I get it. I understand. Okay. I know that you're excited. I know this work is exciting. I make a joke. I know uh, language arts and English and grammar is so fun. You just want to talk about it. <laughs> Pause. Right. So you want to create that relationship if you're going to reach them. And then after that, you'll, it doesn't, it's not a foolproof plan. It doesn't work all the time, but more often than not, it does. And so you have to do what works for you. And a lot of educators that I see who struggle are the ones who do try to stick solely to this handbook that's been placed in their hands. And though you should, as long as you are keeping the children safe, there are still certain things that are left up to you. I, I was having a conversation with a friend and she talked about that with policemen, like, the police may have a code of conduct, but there are still certain situations they can gauge on their own. That's a different conversation. But in the <laughs> same way, you have that power. Like your students, I have 27 students in my classroom, and it's, it's just me. I have to do what, what's going to work in my classroom, what's going to keep them all safe, what's going to be a fun and strong and protected learning environment for them. And that's one thing that I, I prioritize in my space is that it's a safe space. Not one time has there been a fight in my class, ever. Not even close. And I'll hear about the same students fighting in the next class. I'm like, what? They were sitting in their seats fighting. I'm like, they got in a fight. You want to make sure that your kids are in a safe space. And I do that because I do set a standard when they come in. I'm going to respect you. You're going to respect me. And we're going to have a great time learning together. And that's, that's just it. And again, it's identity. That's how you separate ego from anything else and know the needs of the students. I know who I am. And you're going to learn who you are as well. Mm, but mm. I, I require to be treated this way and I'll treat you this way. And so I think as long as we have instructors who have an identity, which I think that that's something we don't have because everybody wants to bend and go with the students. And sometimes they try to be their friends. Sometimes they just want to be a dictator. And you got to find that middle ground. You got to find what works for you. 
I think identity is such a great answer. I just recorded an episode with a woman who hosts a classroom podcast called Classroom Chats, and she talks about helping teachers develop their teacher identity. I think that that is a super key component in terms of stepping outside of ego and connecting with your kids as people. If you're a principal, you want to make sure that your teachers have an identity. You don't want someone that's just coming in there and with no foundation of self. So, yes, I love that. that I might have to check that out. Yeah, yeah. Classroom chat. She is amazing. So speaking of creating that safe space for students that you do as an educator, you talked about when you went to the gifted school, it was really bad for you. And a lot of times we hear gifted school and we automatically assume that that is where we want our students to be like, oh, you have access to this magical program. You should go. But what happens when you go and you don't feel safe there? Not only that, it was I remember the teacher never the teacher even said something before she laughed. We were looking at I still remember this sad. But there was a chart on the board, and it was like a, a swimsuit or something, and she was asking us to, like, name the items or something. And maybe I said, like, bathing suit, or I have no idea what I said, but it wasn't what they used. And the teacher was like, wait, did you just say, uh, and, like, laughed, and the kids laughed? And I was like, that's what we call it. And she was like, that's not what it is. But it was. It was just not their vernacular. So that stood out to me that I didn't feel safe in that space. There was also... Another time where a, a young girl in the classroom, her ruler, she had a super cool ruler, I guess, came up missing. And uh, they wanted to search the desk. And I was like, the first desk they searched, they were like, um, they were calling me by my first name, Shauna, we're just going to check there. And I was like, I didn't take this girl. Like, I couldn't believe it. I was so ostracized. And at that young age, like, I just knew how uncomfortable I was. At gym, lunch like just all white faces and I, I didn't make a single friend at that so there's not a single person I could tell you what their name was and it was it was really not a good experience for me and I feel like the, the materials they put in front of me I did feel challenged in the classroom and I enjoyed it I mean I'm doing all this timetables and all of that and I'm six or however old I was at that time so the curriculum was was on par but hated it and, and I didn't go back so uh, I don't know exactly the ins and outs what I may have ended up telling my parents but that was not a good experience for me. And that's something that has stuck with me. And that's why I really do my best to keep my environment safe and to keep them warm and encouraging. And uh, we don't laugh. My students know that. We don't laugh at anybody, none of that, because uh, it's not worth the consequence they would uh, incur. <laughs> I'll give you something to laugh about. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going. I, I simply cannot. No. Oh, no, so, man. I know if her kids were in my class, they would be good. They would be straight. I know yeah. that's right. I so. know that's right. How have you grown? So since you began your career, and I know that you're reflective because you said that you were not a good coach, <laughs> even though, you know, you're a good player. You recognize that your, your, you know, your skills were not the best suited for the coaching position. So how have you grown since you began your career as an educator? I think that how I've grown is that I have learned to listen. I think I came in and I touched on this before on how I just tried to follow the, the rules and the handbook and that just doesn't work in all areas. So I've grown by learning how to navigate my space and do what works 
for me, whereas I can still teach and the students still learn and everybody still be safe. That right there is not going to be in black and white. Um, that's not something you could just print out and say, do this and it's going to work. You still have to tweak it and make it your own. And so that's what I've, I've learned. I've learned to be more of a listener. Like I listen to the students and I don't just make these judgment calls based off of what just hit my ear, no matter how jarring it is. It's like, okay, what is the actual message that this student is trying to get across? And that has been my growing point, trying to just get to that message, kind of neglect the, the delivery of it all and, and still fix that and still address it, of course, but get more to the root. What, what, what are you trying to convey to me right now? What do you need? Oh, that is just so awesome. Just how you have grown and moved and take, moved your talents from the court to the classroom. Do you miss basketball? You know what? I, I try to miss it, but they always coax me into coaching. So I did coach. I coached the girls' basketball team the, the two years that I've been. So my first year when I got there, the season was over already. But the last two years I did coach. I was the assistant coach the first year, and I was the head coach this past year. And I got a message a few days ago asking what size uniforms the girls need. I'm like, I'm coaching yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm in grad school. I, I don't know if I could. They're like, no, you, you know, you could do it. So I, I miss basketball. But at the same time, it's just I appreciate the experience that I have. And I think that now more than ever, I'm realizing we are so multi-talented in life. And the same dedication I gave basketball and reached such a high level of performance, I can do the same in so many other areas like we all can. And I think it's important to not just hone in on that one thing because how talented we are in general, the capacity that we have to do so many different things. So no, I don't think I so much miss it as I do just appreciate it. Like I thank basketball for getting me to where I am. And uh, it's just time for the next thing, right? So and so many people, I look at so many like people I grew up with playing basketball and they are they trying to hold on to whatever like shred of uh, <laughs> career might be left. I'm like, girl, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, no, no shade. I mean, you, want to play till the wheels fall off but at the same time you can still put that same energy that same dedication and still be great in so many other things and I think we just some people just get so afraid of that what am I going to do after basketball anything you want anything you want and it can be hard to learn something new I'm impatient so I expect to be good when I try something new like I'm learning to crochet and I'm like oh. why can't I make a why can't I make a blanket girl because you're learning how to stitch <laughs> It's going to take time. You know what I mean? But when you're so used to being good, you just expect yeah. to be good automatically in everything. And it's like, no, you got to be patient. You got to practice. Yep. You know, you got to grow in it with that same energy that you grew in one area. You can grow in another. You just got to be patient. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. You got to think about all those hours you put in, which is why my one of my taglines on IG is 10,000 hours. It takes 10,000 hours to become an expert in anything, right? So keep that in mind. I don't know if it's true down to the hour, but it definitely takes approximately that long. And you have to be willing to do that. You're not going to be an overnight expert. But as long as you're willing to put that time in, like I know that, like yeah. 10,000 hours, man. Uh, what are you pursuing your grad degree in? So it's in secondary education. So high school teaching, concentration on English, of course. And then we'll see if the PhD comes after that. That is what my master's will be, a master's in teaching with a um, concentration on secondary education. Well, well, congratulations in advance. 
as you Thank work you. towards achieving that next milestone. Are there any Black educators that you would like to thank as you reflect on your entire journey, student, athlete, and now teacher? Any Black educators that poured into you or supported you that you would like to thank? In college, one of the few Black educators that I had, Taimba Just, he was my poetry instructor. And he was like published, he had sets that he did. Even now, like me and one of my old teammates still kind of follow him. But Taimba Just, he was amazing as an instructor and just made us believe in our Blackness and the power that we had and how to just be unapologetically ourselves. He came in in such artsy outfits in class and he was just cool. And at a PWY, you don't see that a lot from these instructors. So for him to live the way that he lived and us to still remember that, I want to shout him out for that. And my high school biology teacher, uh, Miss Allison, she was amazing. Like she pushed us to be great and she took I really feel like I learned a lot from her and I kind of modeled my teaching style after her. She was just going to be no nonsense, but she still loved and cared about us. And so Miss Allison, she was teaching at Hillcrest when we were there. If any of my friends listen to this, they going to know exactly who I'm talking about. So <laughs> shout out to her, biology. But yeah, the, yep, those are my black educators I want to thank. Black teachers I want to thank. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey. And like I said before we started recording, we're family already because you are cousins with my partner, Brooke, the other founder for Black Educators Matter. Yep, absolutely. We are family, and I feel so honored to be on here. Shout out to Latoya for hooking me up with this yes. for telling me about it. She's amazing. And I want to thank you. Your energy is incredible. What you're doing is incredible. Thank you. Please continue to do this. We need to be seen and heard. Thank you so much. Thank you, Janelle. And everything that you have done, it was, it is, and it always will be worth it. I look forward to celebrating your master's degree when you finish. Oh, thank you. Yep, I'll be back. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Black Educators Matter. Are you ready to share your story? Visit us online at www.blackeducatorsmatter.org to sign up. Remember, make excellence equitable and thank a Black teacher today.